colleagues, thank you very much. I'm delighted that uh, you, can, you can join us here today. We're very pleased to have you. Uh, and I'm very, very pleased to welcome Bukatwari uh, with us today. We're delighted he could come. He's an old friend, an older, longer, I should say, longer-standing friend to Tezzy Schaefer and Howard than to me, perhaps, but we're delighted that I'm delighted to have had this. I'm afraid I'm probably the cause of that. Um, delighted that he could come today and very, very pleased to welcome all of you. Um, I'm not going to to give a long introduction for Farouk. I mean, he's, uh, other than to say, I think he's typical, actually not typical, archetypical, in the sense that uh, this is the sort of story, a personal story, that is emblematic of what's what America has done so well by and has prospered so handsomely from, came to this country uh, with uh, probably not a lot more than the clothes he was wearing and uh, some hope. And, uh, of course, is now the CEO of Ethan Allen has done exceptionally well. This is a country that uh, it's our absolute blessing that we have had a history of growing because we welcomed immigrants. Uh, probably ought to remind ourselves about that every now and then, especially after we're having such an angry national debate about immigration, about what a blessing it's been for us to be able to draw on this kind of talent and to have it make America better and stronger and bigger. And uh, So in that sense, you're very typical or archetypical, Farouk, and I, I would very much like to thank you for having helped build America and also make a very... Uh, a very fine career for yourself, uh, and also typical, I think, for Americans. Uh, uh, he has been a—he's been generous with his expertise and talent in helping the country in larger ways. This is in many different dimensions. I've had a chance to encounter Farouk, and he's—he uh, has done more to try to help broker peace for his home homeland Kashmir than any other person I know. He's actively worked it, you know, which is, again, typical of people that come because they, this is a country where people can see the opportunity to make a difference personally. And he's used his time and his talent and his resources to make a difference personally. Where Farouk is not typical, and I, I want to highlight this, is that and we were just speaking about this earlier. Uh, uh, there was once a time in America when the business leaders would come to Washington to help us with big structural problems. That's kind of stopped. You know, CEOs come to town now to work a tax thing for their company or to get a regulation problem solved. It's very transactional and, frankly, selfish. It's the rare CEO that devotes time trying to help build a better America, systematically, structurally. And Farouk, in that sense, you are not typical. I am very proud to see how actively you are involved in the policy landscape in, in America to try to give us a flavor for uh, how the insights of the business community can help us as a, as a country. And I wish there were more of you, but I'm glad there's you. So thank you for doing that. And today is for that reason that we we called on Farouk to to give us a perspective that we think we need to hear because we've frankly been reading his his words uh, about uh, 
what does America do to uh, retool itself? How do we recover our inspirational qualities as a nation? Uh, and Farouk has a personal history here. He became the CEO of a fabulous brand name that was tired, threadbare, and on the edge of collapse, Ethan Allen. And he turned it around. And so it's that sort of experience, that kind of leadership, that led us to say we want to hear from this man to talk to us about what does America need to do to become a smart power and to refurbish and strengthen its inspirational qualities. So, Farouk, let me say thank you. Thank you for coming here to CSIS. You've always been a great friend here. But thank you for your deep commitment to wanting to help your adopted country to become a better place. Thank you. We'll turn to you now. And then, Tessie, thank you. You're going to lead our, our discussion, but I will first hear from Farouk, Farouk Atari. Well, John, thank you very much for your kind introduction and your words, and I'm very, very pleased to be here. I see many, many friends who have worked with me uh, for many years, Harvey Schaefer, who had opportunity of meeting in Kashmir when I was a student. He ended up coming from as a political officer and got me into a lot of trouble. Uh, I see Ainsley Embry, Professor Embry, uh, he was always been part of the Kashmir study group, and I see Ken Bacon, his president of Refugees International, which I have the privilege of chairing the board of that organization, and they do a, 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 a lot of good work. Now, I've been asked and invited to talk, to share my thoughts on this important issue on the role of the United States as a respected leader and inspiring power around the world. And as John said, I'd like to begin telling you somewhat about Ethan Allen, in fact, the story about Ethan Allen which I see as a useful metaphor for shredding some light on the topic at hand. We are celebrating our 75th anniversary at Ethan Allen this year, and I have had the privilege of leading this company for over, over 20 years. When I look, when I took the helm in the mid-1980s, Ethan Allen had progressed far beyond its simple beginnings as a furniture manufacturer supplying independent dealers who operated Ethan Allen stores around the country. Over the years, Ethan Allen had evolved into a classic American brand defined by its high uh, quality, early American and colonial furniture designs. It was well recognized and had a 90% brand recognition. However, by the 1980s, people's tastes had changed. Colonial and early American furniture were no longer the most popular style category in the country. As a result, the company was in desperate need of reinvention. Moreover, the leadership was too comfortable, and vested interests had developed. The U.S. manufacturing base mostly acquired during the Depression years of the 1930s, was not competitive with growing global sourcing. The dealer network had stopped growing. Few stores were located in premier locations, and the company lacked a cohesive internal and external message. 
The challenge would be to reinvent Ethan Allen without sacrificing its strong brand attributes of quality and integrity and its valuable, valuable brand recognition. Clearly, being well-recognized was no longer enough. We needed to become a preferred or a desirable brand. Our first challenge was to get the messages across internally that, number one, reinvention was necessary, and number two, that change creates opportunity. We launched an intensive internal marketing campaign that advocated taking a fresh look at the issues and challenging the assumptions of the past. We created the understanding that generally new ideas are first rejected, then tolerated, and finally there's an opportunity for acceptance. We also emphasized that reinvention is a key to the continued vitality of any organization. Most of the time, reinvention takes place unconsciously and passively, or it happens consciously and proactively, and that's obviously the preferred method. It was the responsibility of our leadership to reinvent the corporate culture and establish the new guidelines under which our enterprise would operate. As you well know, leaders shape debates and clarify priorities. If leadership fails to take this opportunity and responsibility, the vacuum gets filled by people with louder voices and often with extreme agendas. Once the internal marketing campaign for reinvention was underway, we made other changes, namely, we established a set of core values to guide us. We call them our leadership principles, and I will discuss them in greater detail in a few minutes. We developed a strong, diverse leadership team. We molded our business to cater to the needs of the busy American consumer by becoming a company that specializes in interior design, not just in making and selling home furnishings. Our design centers are satisfied, are staffed by over 3,000 professional interior design consultants with the design know-how, resources, and service ethic to help clients make solid and timely decisions. We recognized our product lines to reflect, we redesigned our product lines to reflect the changing tastes of our customers. So for example, today you will go to an Ethan Allen, this is a little promotion here, go to an Ethan Allen design center and find sleek modern furniture if you want it, or Art Deco, or the English country house style, and much, much more. We consolidated our United States manufacturing operation to nine strong locations, down from 21. We also now have manufacturing operations in several overseas locations. We now directly operate 60% of our 300 design centers through corporate headquarters. The rest are run by independent dealers. We relocated 200 of the design centers to better retail sites. We maintain strong internal and external marketing and communications programs, there is, there is a consistency in our message. Today I'm gratified to say that Ethan Allen as a brand is not only recognized but also preferred by, by our millions of clients in North America and other countries. Going forward, I strongly believe that to create long-term brand preference with our clients our own people must continue to feel very good about our brand.
In my view, the development of our 10 leadership principles is key to our future success. My inspiration for the leadership principles was twofold. I have long been impressed by the universal principles of ethics that are part of all religions of the world and that are also enshrined in the principles that founded this great country. In college in Kashmir, I was a political science student and focused on studying the American Constitution and history. I was particularly moved by the inspiring message, We the People. During the last 20 years at Ethan Allen, we have made a point of discussing our 10 leadership principles throughout the year. Periodically, our senior managers evaluate themselves on their implementation of the principles. Compensation for senior management is based on their adherence to these principles. Today, I would like to focus on a handful of these principles. All 10 can be found on our website, ethanallen.com. First, justice. Justice is not a word often used in business. Yet we know that injustice results in conflicts and lack of motivation, which hinder growth for an enterprise as well as a nation. Second, leaders have to set an example by working hard, innovating, and most important, conducting themselves with humility. Arrogance is often the cause of failure in leaders and enterprises. We must have the self-confidence to empower others to do their best. Third, we must understand that change means opportunity and that it is to be managed, not feared. I lived in the mountains of Kashmir in my youth and hiking is still a hobby of mine. The mountains teach us that reaching the summit requires an appropriate pace. Climbing too fast often results in altitude sickness, which can be fatal. The solution is if you climb too high, and can't breathe, come down a little. Stabilize yourself and then climb again or not. Unfortunately, most people don't like to accept that they have gone too far and do not want to climb down. They end with a disaster. Bottom line, in my experience, good governance is good for profitability. At Ethan Allen, during the last 15 years, we have consistently performed at the highest levels of profitability for our industry and, in fact, for most industries. Now, like Ethan Allen, 20 years ago, the United States today needs, so to speak, to reinvent its brand. Also like Ethan Allen, the brand America, in my view, has great attributes to build on. First, the most inspiring message that America has communicated during the last 200 years is that contained in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, We the People, inspired the freedom and independence movements of the 20th century. Our core values of liberty, democracy, freedom of religion, and separation of church and state, and checks and balances with an independent judiciary have inspired people everywhere. Second, the United States provides, provides unmatched opportunities for success. With hard work and luck, one can attain high levels of accomplishment. As John's mentioned, I myself am but one example of a so-called outsider 
who has benefited from American opportunity. Third, the United States projects quality. People come here from, the, from all corners of the earth to pursue higher education. And we have developed and exported technology all over the world. Fourth, the United States is generous. It has welcomed and absorbed people from all over the world. America, in total dollar terms, has provided more foreign assistance than any other nation. And finally, the United States represents in its ethnic, racial, and religious diversity a microcosm of the world. In my view, the United States is the first globalized state. During the last few years, however, some of our policies have created negative perceptions of the United States in the international community. In my opinion, to strengthen brand America, we must create a strong brand preference internally by improving many areas of life within our own borders by taking many steps, among them the following. We must reinvigorate our leadership. It has become all too satisfied with the status quo and has developed too many vested interests. We must reverse the extremely low ratings of the president, the even lower ratings of the Congress, and the low opinion Americans hold of many corporate leaders. We must invest in infrastructure, in health care, in education, and in improving the condition of people living in poverty. We must take steps to help make America become more competitive. We must recommit to the core values of the free society. We must and can maintain a balance between our security and our values of fairness and justice. In addition, we need to reinvent ourselves abroad in ways that builds on our own, our, our core brand, America's strengths. We must restore the best American values in our dealings with the rest of the world. We must insist on free societies, freedom of speech, rule of law, and protection of minorities. We must accept the outcome of local elections. Changing our core values for short-term perceived gains has a blistering impact on our credibility both at home and abroad. We must create right expectations. We are judged by the expect expectations we create. We need to convey the message that while we are interested in helping others, we need to prioritize our efforts. We cannot be in all places at the same time. We have to clarify and look after our legitimate interests. We must have the self-confidence to empower others to do their best. We should not be arrogant or unilateral. We must take an active part in international organizations. We must help solve problems and conflicts. We mustn't be perceived to create them. We have a great opportunity to help bring peace and prosperity to many regions. In my view, our peacemaking potential can be our greatest role in the world and the future basis of our public diplomacy initiatives. Finally, we must be proactive in changing the perception in the Muslim world and also to some extent in the Western countries that the United States and the West are in a desperate fight with the religion of Islam. 
It is incumbent upon us to dispel the myths that destructively feed the perception that the West is at war with Islam. These myths include Islam is a monolithic religion and almost all Muslims think, think alike. This is a wrong and a dangerous assumption. We must get the truth out. Muslims are diverse in how they think, where they live, and in culture, language, and ethnicity. Another myth is that the Judeo-Christian and Islamic value systems are widely opposed to each other. It is important to note that this belief is, is wrong, is, is held by a vociferous sections of the Muslim and non-Muslim populations. The fact is, Islam is a third religion following the Abrahamic tradition. Myth number three, extremist violence and terrorism are mostly directed at the West. The fact is that countries with Muslim populations are the primary tar targets of extremism and violence. All peoples of the world, regardless of religion, must unite in partnership to combat violence, whatever the source. The final myth I'm going to talk about today is that the Muslim population in the West is a security threat. While there are obviously pockets of extremism, the vast majority of Muslims are integrated and strongly oppose violence and extremism in the name of their religion. Integration in the United States is strong, while the disparities of economic conditions of many Muslim populations in Europe has led to concerns of alienation. In my view, it is extremely important that strong communication programs be developed to help dispel these dangerous myths. These myths inhibit and prevent the development of the strong partnerships we need in the long-term fight against violence, terrorism, extremism, poverty, refugees issues, uh, internally as well as externally displaced people, global environmental problems. Without these strong partnerships, we will be weaker. I believe that despite the current challenges, the United States is in a, in a unique position to take our leadership to the next level in the world affairs. The United, the United States not only wields major military and economic power, but also increasingly reflects the diversity of the world. We should never forget that, that in its diversity, the United States is a microcosm of the world community. As such, we possess unparalleled resources for leading the world towards peace, respectful coexistence. And again, thank you for the opportunity to share my thoughts, and I'm sure we'll have um, more, uh, more of a conversation after this. Well, thank you everybody for being here, and thank you very much, Farooq not only for being here, but for willing to, being willing to uh, answer questions. I thought I might kick things off um, by uh, asking you a little bit about how your uh, reinvention abroad fits into this larger reinvention that you're talking about. Um, you... Uh, one argument that has been made is that what's really needed is a change in style 
in the way we deal with the outside world. I sense that what you're recommending goes beyond the change in style. And I wonder if you would like to give a couple of examples of areas where we need to get beyond a better style and actually make adjustments in substance. Well, you know, I, I will, one of the points that I was getting across is that before you start changing the perception of your brand, of your image outside, you've got to do it first internally. When you talk about this issue of the message or the style, the way we speak, I think you need to have a consistency of a message that the way we talk internally should not be different than when we talk externally. I have believed at Ethan Allen, for instance, that our messages are very similar. Whether it is our, whether I'm talking to Wall Street or to our board or to our associates, our messages, our tone is the same. So I believe that it is extremely important for leadership to have a tone that is same domestically and, in, and externally and the tone has to be that of understanding and recognizing issues, recognizing problems and, uh, and concerns. And because uh, I have found out as a CEO that most people already know of con issues and concerns, and if you don't try to address them up front, your credibility gets lost. So for leadership, it's important to address the issues up front. And when, when you do that, the issue it changes the whole dialogue and the discussion. I'm going to um, try to keep track of the people who want to ask questions as I see people's hands. Bear with me if I miss you uh, briefly. But let me ask that uh, as you ask questions, uh, you identify yourself and the organization you represent, even if I know you. The lady here. Yes, please. Thank you very much. My name is Kathleen New, and I'm a director of the Migration College. I think there's a mic on its way. My name's Kathleen Newland. I'm a director at the Migration Policy Institute here in Washington. Uh, Mr. Katwari, although you referred to it uh, obliquely in, in your remarks uh, in identifying the openness and generosity of the United States as a source of strength, I wonder if you could comment a little more explicitly on uh, how you think uh, U.S. immigration policy in recent uh, years has uh, affected the perception of our society abroad. Thank you. Um, we were actually discussing, I was discussing this issue with John, um, John Hamre a few minutes back that uh, first overall there is no question that the world today has to confront the migrations of people. When you take a look at the migrations of people say in the North Atlantic zone we are confronted with issues both, for instance, what is taking Europe from North Africa and what is taking place uh, in terms of what is in, in the United States, mostly from South America. On top of it, in addition to uh, voluntary migrations, we have involuntary migrations of refugees. And today we got uh, close to 4 million people affected in Iraq alone. 2 million have left the country and 2 million displaced internally. Uh, 
we, uh, I also had, uh, the, 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 I chair the National Retail Federation, and we had a board, board of directors meeting here in June, just a week or ten days before the final vote was taken on the immigration policy. It was a tremendously hotly debated issue. And we had the board of, our board represents the last the major retail institutions in the United States. And we were asked by the leaders of Congress as well as the administration to, to support the immigration policies. And we debated it. It was most probably the first major debate the board of directors has had in many years because it's a very controversial issue. But I must tell you this after about a day and a half of a discussion and debate, we supported the National Retail Federation, the board of directors supported a sensible immigration reform because that must take place. We discussed it. There were people who said, we don't want to tackle it. We don't want to even discuss it because back home, it's a very hot issue. But the fact is, it has to be handled because we don't have an option. The world has become small. We today know that migrations are taking place and will continue to take place. And uh, so certainly we must have a policy here. And but, but long term, I would say that the reason people leave their homes is because of opportunities. They don't have jobs. They don't make money. So I think it's tremendously important that we also look at the issues of helping people in their home countries and create opportunities. If not, we're going to have major migrations from the, inner, from the interiors to the, to, the, to, to, to the cities that is taking place in many countries, from the, from the south to the north, whether it's Europe or America. So I think a tremendous amount of in, uh, leadership is required not only in addressing some uh, immediate uh, immigration reforms, but longer term in creating opportunities so that people do not leave their home. Are there other questions? Yes. I'm Mackenzie Hockey, a master's student in public policy at George Washington University. To what degree is there a risk with branding of getting the message wrong, putting out a consistent message that's wrong, whereas if you um, don't go with the full-on brand route, you run, um, you sort of hedge your bets, you can keep more perspectives on the table? Well, you know, when you're getting a message across, it's very, very hard for people to get the message. In fact, uh, the biggest problem is that most organizations, institutions, companies spend billions of dollars, and then at the end of the day, they find out their message is not heard because it's not clear. So clarity of message and a repetition of the message are the two important ingredients of any campaign. So I think making it very vague uh, is, uh, means you're not gonna, it's not going to be heard. So if the objective is not to be heard, then keep it vague. <laughs> if the objective is to get a message across, it has to be clear, it has to be consistent, but a message has to be based on certain core values. Because if, uh, especially when we are talking about, I talk about at Ethan Allen, we said we are going to create a business based on credibility and integrity. Now, it was not easy. It took us 20, 25 years to get to a point, now, not many, not many enterprises in the United States are in a position where we sell our product at one price without sales anywhere in the country and deliver it to your home. Now, it took us 25 years, and most institutions that have been around for 100 years have not been able to do it. 
to create the credibility and the logistics and the branding to be able to do it. So I think it's extremely important that the messages be clear, they be consistent, and they be simple, and they've got to repeat it a million times. Ainsley. There's a microphone coming. I'm Ainsley Embry, formerly of Columbia University. Uh, Farouk, a question you touched upon, but I don't know whether you want to discuss it. Many of us are impressed by the feeling that Islam and terrorism in this country are identified. Uh, do you feel that there is much anti-Islamic feeling in this country? You know, I had an opportunity of in the, just, uh, in the last 15, 16 months of participating in a task force, co-chairing it, established with the Chicago Council, it was called the American Muslim Task Force. And the objective was to study the subject of the integration of Muslim Americans in American society and, and look at the status. Now, what, what we, after 15 months, and it was a fairly, I mean, I don't know why I did it, because to get involved with something like that was harder than running an enterprise. We had 32 members, 16 uh, Muslim Americans and 16 others of different uh, perspectives and religions. But the good news is after 15 months of deliberation, everybody signed up and everybody agreed. And it was, um, it's on the Chicago Council's website if you want to look at that American Muslim Task Force report which was released here in, uh, in June in, in Washington. What we found was this, that uh, first, uh, the Muslim, uh, from the Muslim Americans are integrated into society. If there are issues, they have had issues like not much different than other immigrant communities who have come into this country. And uh, prior to 9-11, they were busy doing and taking care of their families and their children and all that kind of stuff. And of course, 9-11 came and it has changed their world. There is an issue of um, being concerned. There is that issue of uh, concern about the fact that are, do all Muslims think alike, as I, as I talked about? Do, is there an issue of a security threat? And that has also raised issues of, uh, of um, profiling. In fact, in the Pew study that was done recently, 40% uh, of the young people uh, said, uh, perhaps it was actually done or they perceived that they had some some issues of uh, profiling and some issues of, uh, uh, of feeling that being as a Muslim there, there, there was an issue. But I think that uh, having said this, I, I think in America because, you know, this is a land of immigrants. It's a land of hard work and I said with luck you're able to move on. And Muslim Americans are moving on. Now obviously there are people uh, who are uh, perhaps uh, Alienated. There are people who are affected by religious uh, zealists. So you could have some elements of extremism, but I don't think on a, on a, on a larger basis that's an issue. But certainly there is a, prob a perception uh, of concern among the general population, which, of course, in this report, uh, we also found out and discussed that the media has been to some degree responsible in, in being irresponsible. Uh, my name is Tom Melia. I'm with Freedom House. Nice to see you, Farouk. Um, uh, I, it happens I read that report of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs recently, and I was struck that um, one of the recommendations or conclusions of that report was that 
there's a responsibility incumbent upon uh, Muslims in America to step forward into the public square and define themselves and participate and engage and solve this problem of their alienation or marginalization or discrimination themselves as well. It's not just, it's not just everybody's responsibility in particular. It's, it's the Muslim American community's responsibility. And I thought that was uh, an interesting and unusual way to approach it. Uh, these kinds of reports don't often uh, put it quite as clearly as your report did. And I thought that was very interesting. Um, I wanted to ask you if you could similarly uh, sharpen your recommendations to us about how to improve the American brand. You noted, as we know, that the uh, approval ratings in the United States uh, are very low for our president and our Congress. And of course, they each contribute to that in important ways because much of what we know about the Congress we hear from the president and his view of the Congress. Uh, much of what we know about the president we hear from uh, the Congress. And so they, they really are contributing to the low esteem in which they're both held um, because they fill our news media and our public discussion so much. So I'm asking you whether uh, you have a recommendation for either of them um, about how they can improve their own situation, uh, whether this is something, uh, this important step to improving the American brand globally, which is that we agree ourselves that it's a good brand and want to project. Um, is there something that can be done in the next uh, 18 months, the 15 months of this, uh, the life of this Congress and the life of this administration? Well, I, you know, 15 months is a short term, but I think what's happening is this, that uh, the people are speaking up. I think the chances of their changing is, I think, difficult, but people changing them is most probably more likely. I mean, the reason they have this low ratings is that people are ready to throw them out. And that's a way that things are going to change. Because there are too many vested interests that have been. I ran a one enterprise, and when I took it over, this one little enterprise relatively had vested interests. We had leadership who said, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. We like the way it is, and they don't understand why people are still not buying colonial furniture. They said that's all they should buy, whether they like it or not. Similarly, leaders believe that what they're doing is right and everybody should like it. And uh, I think there, is need, there needs to be a tremendous amount of communications by all sorts of people because there's too many vested interests that have developed. And unfortunately, it is the nature of affairs in an enterprise like ours, which is 75 years. If we had not changed the leadership, changed our culture, we would have been out of business. And the danger in the United States is we need to change that. And it has got to be changed, obviously, by people. And it has to be changed by discussions, communications, or what should it be? Because the vested interest in my, I'm very concerned. You know, when, I, when you read history and you learn about the fact that President Eisenhower said, be concerned about this, you know, what he could define as a military-industrial complex. Well, now over the years, we've got a military-industrial we got the con Congress, we got uh, uh, vested governors, they all have vested interest in that enterprise, and even the think tanks. So all of them are now in, in this thing. So I think it's very, very important that this, uh, this, these discussions take place, and, uh, and the public, not an easy job. In fifth, I don't know what we can do in 15 or 18 months other than through the election process. And the election process, I think, is creating, and unfortunately, uh, the Iraq situation is bringing things to an head. Whether we like, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it is not a good situation for anybody, certainly for the, the people here, for the Iraqis, or for everybody else. 
but what it is doing is it is creating an environment and external external factor is going to I think help bring about change to some degree in the structure in the United States. Prakash. Uh, I'm Prakash Ambigaukar from Beijing Nations. Farooq, thank you for coming, and this was a great way to communicate with you. Uh, as an entrepreneur, just like as you know, I'm an entrepreneur, and uh, I have tried to do is to map the principles of business into the public policy. And each time I think of all these messages and marketing and what is the core business, you run into huge dead blocks, uh, dead ends, I should say. And uh, just take, for example, in the corporate world, the stakeholders, there is no dispute about what their objectives are. Everybody wants the stock prices to go up, company to be profitable, and all of that. But when you look at a society, usually, and just like you pointed out, the interests are conflicting. So it is going to be very difficult to have a single message. And at the same time, how to create a message when... It is based on something you cannot fix this. As an example, I think the brand of America, the core values that go into the Constitution, as we all know, even Ho Chi Minh had the quotations from the early American literature into his speeches. So we have that core idea, but the problem is how do we convince the world that we went into a war with all wrong assumptions, or let's say the false assumptions, and if I tell someone, look, trust me, how do I make it do that? So how do you handle such a messaging, marketing problem? You know, you have to, uh, you just, you cannot just keep on talking. You got to act. Talk is cheap. So look at when, um, when we had two major emergencies internationally that took place, the tsunami and the earthquake in South Asia. America reacted. The world reacted. Certainly America did and was a very positive reaction. And uh, those of us who went to those areas, whether it was a tsunami or the earthquake, we saw that America as its best. That's the way to speak. So America has the opportunity. It has the vision. And that's what people like. This Ambassador Ryan Crocker, uh, Ken, Ken Bacon was with me. We went to those earthquake areas. And he was at its glory. In Pakistan, he was handling the earthquake. I'm sure right now in Iraq, it's, you know, I, mean, I don't know how much he likes it, Ken. <laughs> but uh, he was doing and he loved it because he was helping people. And the American army was there. The MASH was there. Hospitals were there. And this was in an area where previously they, they could not even walk. They were scared to walk. They thought they would be shot at. They were walking in the streets. They were loved by people. So America has to show it by action and can. Those are the resources that we have. We do those kinds of things. And we must solve some of these world problems. Look at the Middle East is a great problem. We are keeping it simmering. We've got to help solve it in, in an honorable way. You know, there are other regions of the, of the world. Kashmir is an issue, and of course, that, that is that's another problem. But certainly the Middle East uh, affects the perceptions and has created a lot of issues. An honorable resolution of that, which is right for... The Israelis and also for the Arabs is needed. And if not, we're going to continue to have problems because uh, that's a big issue over there. So these kinds of things, if, you, if we handle some of these uh, political issues, we handle some of these issues of um, 
poverty alleviation. Look at the issues of refugees that are taking place in the world. We have the resources to help them. If we do those things, uh, I think we get the message across. The core values of America gets, gets across there much better than, than our talk. The lady uh, just in front of the last questioner. Good morning. For Hi, good morning. Um, I think one of the things that... Could you identify yourself, please? Yes, sorry. Anne Gantian. I'm the executive director of the Atlantic Partnership. Uh, pleased to be here today. Thank you. Um, one of the things that the United States does rather well, or perceivably well, is the assimilation of immigrants and legal and not into its culture. For example, if you go to any baseball game, you have the national anthem. If you, you have the Pledge of Allegiance, there's a lot of... Um, positive aspects to that type of assimilation that happens to someone who lands on our shores. And I can tell you it's uh, not the same, having lived in many different places in the world. There's not that same sort of assimilation of immigrants. It's a lot more laborious. Um, I guess my question, and it's the first of two unrelated questions, is um, how do we turn that assimilation into a positive? So how do we take the fact that we're, we're pretty good at assimilating people and by force or, or not, how do we turn that into a positive internationally? And then my second unrelated question is, you spoke a little bit about the responsibility and Mr. Hamber spoke about it as well. What role does business have? What responsibility does business have in improving these things that you've identified, education, poverty, and also the restructuring of charitable giving, which at, at present is very much um, in the U.S. interest and not always in the receiving, in the recipient's interest. So if, I'm sorry for the question. Well, as I said that, if you think of it, uh, we are and becoming, uh, some people may not like that uh, terminology, that we are the first globalized state. I, I, I refer to that. We, America, has, people have come from all over. And, uh, and in the, in the last uh, 30, 40 years, even the diversity of those has increased. So we have, we have right here and we have an example of how diversity works and works well. Now, that's a great example to share with people. That's a great example. In my view, our core values of what America represents are the ones that should be our message. Now, nobody is perfect, and the American experience has also not been perfect, cannot be. When we talk of the Declaration of Independence and when we talk of the, uh, the Constitution, we know we have had many issues over here with the minorities, with the women not voting, but that, that does not mean that it is not, uh, that there are not a lot of positives. We should be, like, make people understand that. There is nothing in this world that is perfect. It's relatively better than... Any, anything else that we have seen out there as an experience in the last 200 years. It has faults. Similarly, I think that's the reason I was talking about creating the right expectations. We cannot go out there to the world and say everything we do is right. We are the best. There's no such thing. We have issues. We are confronting those issues. We should let people know the issues and the positives that we have. And I believe that... Uh, as we go forward, the diversity of this of America should also represent and is going to represent the leadership of this country more and more so. That will help 
when we're talking about the projection of the, the simulation. And we, when to this time um, we have uh, Senator Hillary Clinton, a woman, and we have Barack Obama as an African-American as president. I mean, these are major changes that are taking place in our society. And those messages are not, uh, th those messages are being heard in the rest of the world loudly and clearly of what America is today. Now, as far as the business uh, is concerned, um, you know, our, our first responsibility is to our, to within our own world. When people ask me about the role of business in charitable giving and all that, I said, ah, the biggest thing we can do is run our businesses right. Major businesses have three, four hundred thousand people working for them, or more. There are many, many communities domestically, internationally work, are, are dependent on them. I have always said that the responsibility of the businesses is to conduct themselves in a fair manner as a business. If they do that, they have made a tremendous contribution in terms of quality, in terms of credibility, in taking care of their clients. Now, we have millions of clients. If we take care of our clients, we have done a very good job. If we can take care of thousands of our own associates, sometimes business leaders forget that. And it becomes a public relations program that if you give to some charitable organization, you've done a great job. I say first, do your own mission right. That's the most important thing you have to do. Then you should, you should do other things. And if more businesses run their businesses right, they will make a much greater contribution than just uh, providing funds for charitable giving, which they should do too. There was a gentleman way in the back of the room. Is that you, Jerry? I can't see that far. Jerry Epstein here at CSIS. You've talked about the difficulty of messaging and that you really need to do the right thing and then you can't talk as cheap. And I guess my question is pursuing that. We're not just messaging into a world where people have other interests and hard to get their attention. We're messaging into a world where people are combating and attacking our message with an alternate message. And to me here, it seems the asymmetries are really striking. In the security world, we're familiar with the concept of asymmetric attack. You have a very expensive military, very strong forces, and you have a hard time dealing with people who aren't playing your own game, very cheap attacks in other areas. And I think in messaging, it's, it's an even worse problem. You're spending hundreds of millions of dollars doing the right thing, and you're combating a cartoon in a Danish newspaper. Or you're combating a news story of a Koran being flushed down the toilet in Guantanamo, not to mention the things that actually didn't happen. You're combating mythical stories. <clears throat> and in the Internet world, you have a story over here, and you have a story of the USA for over here. And the scales are so asymmetric and so disparate, it seems to me it's a very, very hard job to get your message across because it's so cheap to attack it. So I wonder if you could speak to that asymmetry. Well, you know, throughout history, in my view, great, great uh, nations lost because they were diverted by small, little obstacles. A, a responsibility for a leader is to prioritize and to say where they're going to spend their resources on. And there are times when you, if, you're, if you are going on a major campaign and all of a sudden you've got a little opposition on the side, there are two ways. You can spend your whole resource fighting them or go around it. I think we as a nation have to look upon the fact of how much of resources we are spending on small obstacles, smaller obstacles, and get diverted from our mission. Major, 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 major missions were lost because 
of the fact they got they got uh, you, we got they got into fight on the terms of that uh, the, the enemy with a different uh, viewpoint of doing it. So, so, so I think that we've got to be careful in the United States that we don't spend these big, huge resources to fight little things. And that has to be carefully thought through. Because big, big, lot of, a lot of empires and nations have been lost on that concept, that they have gone after small, little stuff and not realized where to fight and where not to fight. And in my view, in the United States is in that position. Because when you are big, you think that force, your big force is going to solve the problem. And sometimes the best thing is to, to fight in a different manner and not use big force against it, go around it. And most of the time, that little thing goes away. Right here. Thank you very much. Um, I'm Fireboys Gadar. I'm a, s a senior scholar here and a professor at Penn State University. I very much enjoyed your presentation, Farrell. As a leader of a U.S. Uh, corporation, generally U.S. corporations overseas have a very positive brand. They're more, uh, much more ma ma uh, ethical. Meritocracy is more important. Technology compensation is higher. And really, the treatment of minorities are much higher in their organization. And they're generally more uh, favorably received by environmentalists. Uh, my question is, how do we better benefit from this? Somehow the image of U.S. corporations, however, doesn't seem to benefit from that. And that affects the U.S. image overseas. Do you have any thoughts on how we could benefit better from, from our activities? No, you are right that uh, every time we have gone overseas, we, are, we have to establish standards that are consistent with our standards here. In fact, much more so now. In fact, when we're talking of governance, we today with the Sabines, Oxley, and everything else that we look into, today we are judged and we have to establish those somewhat similar standards all over the world. So you're absolutely right. The American organizations, enterprises do help raise the standards overseas. And um, now the now, the problem is this, that uh, we are competing, as we were talking of competing on this question of um, on, on, on fighting a small, a small, um, a small force with, with, with different methods. We also have an issue in terms of being competitive in the world because we are operating on, on different standards. Uh, we, when we take a look at what's happened recently on this whole issue of toys issue coming from China, I mean, we have a contradiction. On the one hand, that we want them to make cheap products. Uh, on the other hand, we want them to make great quality products. There's an inconsistency. I think that it's extremely important for the United States to take the leadership role. The reason I'm saying is because the United States is a leader, and you, you cannot uh, say that somebody else is going to do it. If you're a leader, you've got to, be, got to be in a leadership position. I think there's a need to help raise the standards of governance, there's a need to raise the standard of quality, of environmental issues in many parts of the world because we are the biggest customers. Now, the corporate leaders can do some of it, but I think it needs much more than that. I think this is where our national leadership should come in and to encourage others to get start thinking about the fact of establishing better standards in the way that they are environmental standards, for instance. 
we're talking about uh, wages overseas. You're not going to have American wages, but they should have a decent living conditions. I think those are the kinds of things that we, as a nation and leader, can establish the kind of messages we are talking about. Now, if you leave it only to businesses, some businesses are doing it, but a lot of others are only interested in getting the cheapest possible price because they're competing with their competitor who's doing the same thing too. So we need to raise that level, and we have a great opportunity of doing it. And that will also help this issue of emigration and everything else we are talking about. Because in the long run, we cannot, we cannot believe that we're just going to become better and stronger and everybody is going to be down. Not possible. We're going to have a lot of conflicts in the world. We've got to help in this globalized world, whether we like it or not. The, the future is there that we've got to help raise, a le raise everybody else. If not, long term, we're going to go down. Whatever time you say, these folks are... Okay, well, I've got two people, three people on my list already. The gentleman in the back there. No, not the guy just in front of you. You're on, the, you're on it, too. Hi, I'm James Bernard, uh, Vice President of Communications for World Learning. Um, and I appreciate your remarks, especially as the person responsible for our brand message and our message and consistency of message. I think it's, it's very true. However, I would wonder if uh, the communications program to get our message out is only one aspect of a public diplomacy program and fixing America's uh, reputation abroad, and whether there needs to be a second part of it or a second prong to the approach, which is true citizen exchanges, one-on-one -on -one exchanges, a two-way communication. Um, right now, uh, roughly 2% of college students go abroad, and I think there's a statistic out there that a significant percentage of our Congress has never traveled abroad. And I think to get people one-on-one uh, -on -one having true meaningful dialogue across cultures is another way to do this, and just would like to hear your thoughts on that as a second approach to uh, getting the message out there. Thanks. I think it's absolutely necessary. I think that on one hand, we have to be concerned about our security. We have to be concerned about who, who we are getting in. But on the other hand, stopping people from coming and learning. I was listening to the, this uh, PBS, it was Margaret. Um, she was in Pakistan yeah, yeah. three or four days. She covered it. And one of the comments that struck me was that the Pakistanis in the, in the, uh, in the street said, you know, we don't, we don't see Americans anymore. We, we used to see them all, and we used to talk to them. They'll be all over the place. Now... They're all either rushing around at 100 miles an hour on their, you know, these armored cars, or, or that uh, we have to go into these barbed wire embassies. It's a two-way street. Not only the fact that we are restricting a lot of people coming here and learning and understanding, we are also now, because of these concerns of security, and even to some degree a little more paranoid, but, I, but certainly there are good reasons for it, we are also becoming less in, in many countries where there are problems, especially Muslim countries. So I think we, we need to address that issue too. But I think the fundamental issue has to be that we have to rethink our policies. And if our policies are based, as I said earlier, on our core values, the Freedom House share, you know, that Tom Melia talked about the fact that uh, they project um, that the values of America, that of free societies, of um, freedom of speech, um, uh, protection of minorities, and all those kinds of things. We've got to believe in that. We've got to do that. And we cannot be, for long, for short term, 
we have to be careful not to change our policies. You know, we've got to think through. And as an enterprise, I say to myself every time we have to do something, I say, how is it going to affect, what precedents are we setting up? I think our national leadership is to think much more about the precedents we are setting up in our actions. Some people have to, you know, some nations and tribes used to say, we're going to think about seven generations, how it's going to affect seven generations of some important decisions. I think we've got to start thinking about our precedents. When we support dictatorial regimes, it sends a bad message. When we talk about democracy and freedom and then do not accept the verdict of the people in elections, we send a wrong message. Those kinds of things we should not do. So we have to have these, um, these messages I'm not talking about are not advertising messages. These are messages that are of core values. And this is the values of America. We get those messages across. But the fact is this. As everywhere, most people in the world like America. They may, have they may not like the policies from time to time, but they like America, and most people in the world want to come here and live here. So we have tremendously great brand. And I think it's important that these kinds of discussions and other discussions talk about the fact of how to improve it. Because a lot of people think that if you criticize or make suggestions that somehow you are being less patriotic. Well, that's wrong. I think internal criticism, from a constructive point of view, is the first step towards reinvention. Otherwise, you're not going to get reinvention if you start challenging that any new idea is wrong and is going to be against our interest, well, you're not going to go to the next step. Reinvention is necessary. And America, like everything else, everybody else needs reinvention because we are either reinventing unconsciously all the time, but it is better to do it consciously because, you know, hope is not a method. So we've got to create a method of reinvention. Back of the room. Hello, uh, my name is Brian Gouch. Um, I work with a current local company, Sport and Health Corporation, Director of Business Development. Um, question is, I guess, a compilation of all the, the words you've said today, Farouk, and I appreciate them. Uh, first one is in regards to, you said, America has to actually create a brand that brings up the rest of the world and to create, uh, I, I guess, a streamlined standard process here. And my thinking and my question is, we have current agreements like NAFTA and CAFTA and other agreements with our Central and South American countries. And they currently have environmental and labor standards that are built in. And I think that ties into, my question ties into your previous statement of the leadership of this country can't just not only tell its people, okay, we, we know best, we're going to do it this way, but it also can't tell foreign countries and foreign organizations that we know best, you're going to have to do it this way. It's been an ineffective policy for us. Understanding that business carries the torch there when it comes to um, – setting those standards and keeping those standards. So one is, what do you see some of the barriers being when it comes to you creating the standards, you being uh, CEO of a multinational company? And second question being, when you talk about branding in other countries, how can you positively brand the opportunities that you have here in America being multicultural opportunities to work with people that are of different, different gender, different race, when you go to other countries and they don't appreciate that opportunity? So how do you articulate that brand when you can't have a set process across the entire company? And third is, how do, you, how do you stop the cannibalizing of the politicians to create a standard brand across the world when they're just looking to get into office? Well, on the first uh, issue, it is very hard for uh, 
enterprises just by themselves to establish standards. Um, even though we, we try, we do it. Uh, but I think we are talking about here, it, these are, if in the United States we didn't have um, minimum wage, we didn't have environmental standards, we didn't have to deal with uh, Sabin's oxygen, all that stuff, you would have very different standards. Not everybody voluntarily would not be doing it. We have the SEC regulating us. We have got all kinds of things. We have auditors. So these things, we are not doing it on our own, even though uh, all those things are good to do. So I think similarly, it, it is extremely important that in this case, national leaderships have to play a role along with corporate leaders. There needs to be an effort to bring them together. Now, it's very hard for corporations to get together on these kind of stuff, situations and to uh, enforce uh, a policies that will be followed by everybody else. You have to establish legal, enforceable standards. Otherwise, they don't work. The gentleman on this side in the back of the room. How you do, sir? My name is Jay Kim, and I'm Executive Vice President for uh, Oshkosh Truck Corporation. Yes, uh, my friend uh, John uh, complimented you on being one of the few uh, corporate leaders that are stepping up uh, and participating in the dialogue in government these days. Uh, my experience, <clears throat> having been both in government and out of government, is that uh, corporate leaders are viewed with uh, suspicion, uh, in some case disdain, and there are many barriers for a corporate leader like yourself to try to participate in, in, in the government discussion. Uh, a, a typical example would be if I took my chairman in to see somebody within this administration, uh, I would almost assure you there would be at least one, if not more, lawyers in the room to ensure that uh, appropriate distance and things didn't happen. So how have you been successful in, in breaking down some of those uh, barriers that seem to face uh, you know, the thousands of men and women who lead corporation who could participate and help but are really prevented by the ethics laws and other things that are, that are making us almost demonizing corporate leaders? Well, I think that uh, my position would be much weaker if Ethan Allen was not a strong brand. If Ethan Allen did not conduct itself well, if we were not respected by, by our clients. The fact is that almost everywhere I go, whether it is the President of the United States or members of Congress or people at the immigration, they, they say, you've got a great company. We like your brand. Our own people at Ethan Allen, they, they take pride in our company. You meet with them, they say, we love, we, we love, we like to work for this organization. So, so I think that before you are liked by others, you've got to be liked by your, by, your, by your own associates. Then the next thing is this. I gave that little example of climbing a mountain. You cannot ask for things that are unreasonable. That are, go that are going to only benefit you, that obviously become a very vested interest. We have, as a business, said that we are going to grow and we are going to grow our, by our own efforts, and I don't want to just grow for the sake of growth. I'm not talking about individual uh, as, a, as a business enterprise. So we have restricted most probably our growth by not doing all kinds of things that possibly we could have done 
but it would have it would have affected the credibility within and the credibility outside. So business leaders have to have that kind of a credibility that if they are going in to ask for special favors, you have a different position. I don't go in to ask for special favors. I say you better do your jobs right, not just for me, but for the country, for, for others. So the business leaders have to take a broader perspective and not to take, as John was saying, most of the business leaders come in for very narrow perspectives. So they're basically lobbying. And if you are lobbying, you have a different perspective. And those who don't lobby and those who have that ability, and they do, and there are many great business leaders, we don't hear about them, but they are listened to. But generally speaking, I think the business leaders have to rise above their narrow business needs and to be able to uh, look after them some uh, more of a national interest. And uh, I think that, uh, unfortunately, not many business leaders are doing it, which they should, because they can add a lot to the debate and discussion in the country. Well, Farooq, you've been very generous with your time. Um, I think you've given us a lot of wonderful messages to take away. Your appeal to justice as a key element in both business and national behavior, the importance of matching deeds to words, the idea that it is our core values that need to be an inspiration, not just by talking about them, but by living them, the importance of innovation and reinvention, and my own experience in government at a time when our budget was being trashed, uh, has burned into my soul how difficult it is to move a large organization. I have this wonderful quote from Machiavelli on my wall, written 500 years ago, in which he talks about how the hardest thing to do is to introduce change. It could have been written yesterday. The importance of priorities, the importance of solving problems, and uh, also I think I heard you talking about an appropriate role for government. We can't do this all as individuals. But thank you very much for your inspiring words, and thanks for being with us today. Please join me in thanking our